cute to ask me, Wolfgang, what do you prefer, going shopping at Nima Markets or to the farmer's market? There's no doubt I will go to the farmer's market. So for me, our cooking is all about the ingredients. If we get the best ingredients and then don't mess them up, we're going to have good food. Welcome to Rodeo Drive, the podcast, the show about the visionaries who keep three blocks in Beverly Hills at the forefront of fashion and culture. I'm Kathy Gohari with the Rodeo Drive Committee. I'm Lynn Winter, your host for this episode, and I'm thrilled to talk with Wolfgang Puck, legendary chef, restaurateur, and caterer to the stars. Today, his empire spans more than 27 restaurants around the globe, cookware, wine and coffee lines, best-selling cookbooks, and a documentary film. But Wolfgang wasn't born with a silver spoon in his mouth, and he met plenty of challenges along the way. He joins us here to share his amazing story, here on Rodeo Drive at Cut Lounge at the Beverly Wilshire. Wolfgang, welcome. Thank you. Great to be here. I mean, that's my home here on Rodeo Drive at the Beverly Wilshire. I love that. And I don't know you so well. Can I call you Wolf or Wolfie? Wolf is perfect. Wolf. Okay. So, Wolf, take us back to the beginning where it all started in a rural village in Austria. Exactly. I was born in a small town and we lived next to the town in a small village with two farmers and four houses. And we had no electricity. We had no indoor plumbing in the house. And I had a stepfather who was terrible. Uh, very abusive, both mo- emotionally and physically, to my sister and myself and everything. So uh, at the beginning, I didn't really think I'm going to be a cook, but uh, my mother was a chef also in a hotel. So I wanted to be an architect, but there was only one school in Vienna where I could go to, and that was too expensive. We didn't have the money, so my mother found me a job in a little hotel uh, uh, 50 miles away from where I grew up. And, you know, my stepfather always told me I was good for nothing. And, you know, and when I told him I'm going to go start cooking, he said, cooking is for women, that's not for men. You should be a carpenter or a mason or something like that. And I didn't listen to him. And he told me when I left with my little suitcase, he said, oh, in one month you're going to be back and begging for money and, you know, and so forth. So... And I told him, I'm never coming back. So I started to work in this little hotel, and the chef was as crazy as my stepfather. And uh, one Sunday, like two months into my apprenticeship, I was 14 years old. I didn't go to high school, so only middle school. And uh, uh, we ran out of potatoes and mashed potatoes, and naturally they told me it was my food. I had no idea how much... We needed really of potatoes or whatever. So, and the chef called me over and says, "You know, you're good for nothing. You better go back home to your mother." And I was saying, "You're fired." And he went on and on, yelling like crazy, like any old times the chefs did. And uh, so I said, "You know, I'm not going home." So that night, I stood on the bridge uh, over the river. There was a big river going through the town there, and I said, "I'm much rather kill myself than going back home." So. I was standing on the bridge there looking down in the dark water and uh, thinking what will happen, you know, if I jump in there. And uh, will I go to heaven or to hell or whatever? And then all of a sudden, like half an hour, an hour into it, I said, you know, maybe I'm just going to go back tomorrow and he's going to change his mind or something. So I couldn't sleep all night. In the morning at 7 o'clock, I went back. 
uh, to the hotel, and the apprentice who was ahead of me was so happy to see me because if not, he would have to peel potatoes and onions and all that stuff again for another six months. And so he said, why you don't just go down in the vegetable cellar and I bring you some soup or some sandwich or whatever to eat and uh, you peel the potatoes and the onions and everything. So I was down there maybe for two weeks or so. And then finally the chef came down and saw me sitting there peeling potatoes and his, he starts screaming and uh, yelling and cursing me off and then uh, trying to grab me. And I was holding on to the potato bags and screaming also. But then I couldn't care less. I said, I'm never going home. I'm not going home. And uh, I went on and on. And then he really didn't know what to do. So he called the owner of the hotel and says, I don't know what to do with this little shit there. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, he is yelling back and he doesn't know. He doesn't want to leave and so forth. So and I told him to go home. He fired me. And uh, the owner was a little bit, had a little bit more empathy. He sent me to another hotel they owned there. And there was a woman who was the chef. And she said, you know, just be quiet and uh, do your job and uh, you will be fine. And sure enough, you know, I didn't talk much. I just did what I had to do. And that was it. And, you know, at that time, even I was 14 years old, I started at 8 in the morning until 2.30 in the afternoon and from 5 to 10 every day. And once in a while they said, okay, tomorrow you're off. That was it. When my apprenticeship was over, I wrote them in France and I said, can I come to do a stage in uh, Dijon, in that restaurant? And they accepted me. So I took a French teacher. I said, at least I have to learn a few words in French. And you speak French? Yeah, now I speak French. I lived there for a long time. So, uh, but I learned French a little bit. So I went to this restaurant in Dijon, took the train. It took us a day and a half to go with the train from where I came from. And then I arrived there. I was so nervous, you know, I forgot all the French I learned. Uh, and uh, I knew how to say bonsoir. And they, I showed them the letter they wrote me. And, uh, and then I started to work there. And about a year into the job, I started to speak French already pretty well. I used to read the French newspapers all the time and everything to learn. And then the owner gave a, a party for all the employees. And... Uh, because the restaurant received one star in the Gid Michelin. I had no idea what the Gid Michelin was. The way they were speaking in the restaurant, they said, you know, Dijon is the capital gastronomique mm-hmm. of France, and we are the best restaurant, and they went on and on and on. And so I took the red book, looked through it, and then I found out there were, uh, we had one star, but I found out there was a two-star restaurant, there were three-star restaurants. So I said, I'm not going back to Austria until I work in a three-star restaurant. So I wrote to Bocuse and Trois-Gros and La Tour d'Argent, all the famous three-star mm-hmm. restaurants. And then one restaurant called Beaumanier, and the owner was Raymond Tullier, he gave me a favorable response and accepted me. And I told him, you don't have to pay me if, you, uh, you, if I don't work well enough. So I went, took the train down to Provence and uh, to Avignon, and then they picked me up at the train station, and uh, uh, I started to work there. And, and that he, really changed my life there. And he became a real mentor yeah, for you. Yeah, he became my real mentor. He was the first one who saw something in me, like I was working next to him doing the sauces and uh, so forth, and I wasn't scared of him or anything, because when I cooked something, I made a sauce for the Dobasol or something, and... Uh, 
he tasted it and said, okay, put a little more salt, a little lemon juice, a little this in it. And I said, okay. And then when he made something, he made me taste it too. And I said, yeah, a little more salt or a little more pepper. And he said, okay, let's put a little more salt and pepper. So he really uh, trusted me because I wasn't saying, uh, telling him, oh, it's delicious like yeah. all the other yeah. young guys did. So he took me under his wing and it helped. You know, we had the best materials there, the best ingredients there. I mean, Beaumontier has amazing gardens, yeah. right? amazing vegetables. That, yeah. yeah produce. So we had great vegetables, berries, melons, apricots, the green beans as tiny as uh, they could be and... So everything tasted so amazing. The fish came right, the rouget and everything from Marseille. Mm -hmm. So, and the three-star service and everything. So it was a whole different experience. And I remember also, we had a lot of famous people come there. Like I remember Tullier Porta, Elizabeth Taylor in the kitchen and uh, George Pompidou, who was then the mm -hmm. prime minister or president of France and a few other, like Catherine Deneuve, I remember. And so I said, I want to be like him. I want to own my own restaurant one day. And so I stayed two and a half years there. Then I went to uh, Beaulieu-sur-Mer. And uh, from, I didn't really like it. I, I didn't like it that much. And then the immigration came and uh, said, I have to leave the country. Oh, they did. Yeah. So uh, it was funny because the chef was a nice guy. And he says, don't worry, I find your job in Monaco. Monaco is right next and to you Beaulieu. And you went to the Hotel de Paris? Yeah. So I went to the Hotel de Paris and worked there. And I didn't really like it so much. And then Mr. Tullier found me a job in Paris. I went to Maxime's in Paris. And there... I had a friend who was working in Chicago at Maxim's, and he told me, you have to go to America. You make so much more money there. It's so much better, and just don't waste your time in France. He went on and on, although I loved Paris. It's a beautiful city, and I was the night chef by then at Maxim's. Mm -hmm. I was the number three guy, and I was only like 23 years old, 24 maybe. And so finally, through this friend, I got a job in uh, New York. Right. And then... Uh, I packed my little bag, sold my car, and uh, took the player France plane and went to New York and uh, didn't know where to stay, what to do. So I checked into a hotel uh, with full of cockroaches and everything. It was uh, not a nice place, but it was cheap. And then I went to the restaurant where I was supposed to work, but that was like a little bistro. I didn't really like it. It was famous at that mm -hmm. time, already called Agoulou. And uh, I said, no, I worked in all these three-star restaurants. I want to have a real restaurant. And uh, like by accident, I went to uh, La Grenouille, and I met George Masson, who was the owner at that time of the restaurant on 52nd Street. Mm -hmm. And he says, no, don't work in a pistol like that. You worked in all these fancy restaurants, three-star restaurants. You have to work in a really upscale restaurant. He called his friend in Chicago, and he said, no, I don't need anybody in Chicago, but I need somebody in Indianapolis. And so I said, Indianapolis? I said, because I love auto racing, and Monaco has the big race, yeah, uh, you know, and so does Indianapolis. The 500 miles of Indianapolis are world famous. But not really a culinary center. Uh, not a culinary center at all, but they're famous for a week when they have the race. And so I took the Greyhound bus and went to Indianapolis and said, shit, that's Indianapolis? I thought it's going to be a little bit like Monaco or something like that. But it was at that time. Very, very different from Monaco. A very, very different, different yeah, place. Yeah. And from Provence as yeah, well. Yeah, totally, totally. All flat there. And at that time, they didn't have restaurants or anything. You know, it was really a sad place, but I couldn't leave. I had no money, so I started to work there. 
After a year, I got my green card, and then I moved out to California. And how did you get started in L.A.? How did all that happen? So I had a job. The same company who I worked for in uh, Indianapolis, they had a restaurant downtown in L.A., so they gave me a job there. And it was funny because I was like the night chef in a restaurant. They had an executive chef because there were like four or five restaurants in the building. And uh, uh, he could not cook. So I remember one time we were doing uh, a wine dinner or something. And he, he did something, I did something, and the Japanese chef did a course or whatever for the tasting. And uh, they sent us a letter after said, okay, the second course was great, the third course was great, but the first course was unedible. <laughs> and it was the chef who did it. And he was like this big guy, weighed, like an Arnold Schwarzenegger type guy. And so I was laughing at him. <laughs> I said, I was laughing at oh, the first one. I, got, I wonder who made it. You know, I made a little joke and he did not appreciate it. But through another <laughs> chef I knew, I found this uh, restaurant called Ma Maison which was almost bankrupt then. So I started to work there. And uh, uh, I mean, that was really the start of everything, right? Yeah, it LA. was the start for me in L.A. And, uh, you know, the restaurant, I remember my first paycheck bounced. So the restaurant, everything was on COD. So if I didn't pay for it, uh, I, they took their merchandise back. I went downtown to the fish market and bought lobster shells because some other big restaurant uh, bought the lobster meat and so. But little by little, we moved up. And it had like plastic chairs. Yeah, and it had plastic chairs. AstroTurf on the floor. Yeah, and then it became processed meats in the fridge, right? Yeah, when I started, it was <laughs> terrible. You didn't want to go in the refrigerator. It was so sad, you know. But I changed it and went to the. Uh, farmer's market and I went to, uh, to the downtown market and went to the fish place and bought a little bit but I prepared it well the way I did it in uh, the three star restaurant so, and why do you think it was such a success I mean it was a you know. well I don't know you know if you could bottle it I would just sell it and sit here and talk and drink you know there's no real reason the timing the people yeah. and everything fell into place yeah. And, you know, it wasn't fancy, but the food was good. And it felt like California in a way, a little cheesy California, you know, because yeah. of the plastic chairs and astroturf and uh, funny roof on top. But people loved the food and it became really one of the top restaurants in the country. Yeah. But I always wanted to be on my own. I always wanted to write my own check. So little by little, uh, I, I was thinking I have to open my own restaurant. But I felt guilty. That was at the height of my maison. You know, we had all these famous people from Awesome Wells to uh, Chuck Lemon and uh, uh, Jackie Collins and Joan Collins and all these people used to come to the restaurant. And uh, I felt bad leaving. So I told Patrick, you know, we have to start uh, a new restaurant company where I own half and you own half. At that time, I already found the place up on Sunset. And I explained him what I wanted to do and uh, so forth. And he's, he looked at me and says, you know, i always going to own 51%. Mm. And then I said, well, me too. So that I was the that. end. So I had to leave after three months or so I left or even before. And then he talks really badly about me and said, oh, Wolfgang is opening a pizza joint or a spaghetti joint and so forth. And then in 82 in January, I opened Spago and we never looked back since.
And you opened that with Barbara Lazaroff, your former yeah. wife. And yeah. it was really a restaurant that changed dining in L.A. forever. Tell us okay, so when, how uh, that Okay, so when we were opening the restaurant, so I said, I want a restaurant where I can manage the restaurant from the kitchen. I don't want to be in the background. So we built the kitchen in the middle of a restaurant, just like a stage. And it was easy for me to see who is coming in, uh, what's going on. So and for the guests, it was some new experience. You know, the restaurant wasn't formal at all. All that was formal was what was on the plate. You know, we bought the best ingredients. I went down to the Chino farm, got fresh vegetables and corn and melon and strawberries and everything. And people never had vegetables which tasted that well, that good. And Barbara was really the designer, right? She created yeah. this. Barbara designed the restaurant totally. I remember we raised five hundred thousand dollars, and it was we, it was different investors, right? Yeah, with different investors. I was the biggest investor. Dentist, I, wasn't it? A dentist. A few dentists, a few shrinks, a few lawyers, and so forth. Like fifteen uh, people, and uh, I, I remember I invested sixty thousand dollars, which at that time was a lot of money. I didn't have it, but a banker loaned me the money and uh, a friend of mine had to co-sign it and Amazing. everything. So uh, we started then the restaurant. I was in a cookbook too. I wrote my first cookbook for Ma Maison and uh, made a little money that way. And I went all over the United States selling cookbooks and doing radio shows and TV shows and everything. And uh, by January, the restaurant was finished. We opened up, and I was had many sleepless nights. And I said, what about if nobody shows up? Everybody's going to laugh at me, and I'm going to have to leave town and so forth. But It was the, an immediate success, Yeah, right? the first night we opened up, and uh, I don't know, we didn't have a lot of reservation, but somehow people knew we were opening, and all of a sudden I looked around. The restaurant was full. And then I remember a week or two weeks later, George Christie, he used to write for The Hollywood Reporter, came and uh, uh, with some old movie stars and everything. So, and then he wrote like the best article and the first article the next day. And he told everybody, you better remember the phone number and make a reservation now. If not, you will never get a table there. So, and that started then everybody from Hollywood had to come because that was really the Bible of everybody in Hollywood. The first thing they read was uh, the Hollywood Reporter in the morning, and then uh, there was a page at the end called The Great Life by George Christie, and that was, for us, more important than any food critic review. And you could barely get a table. It was jockeying for tables, right? Yeah, it became and that, a real thing at the, the problem restaurant. was, the way the restaurant was, was the back and the front, so everybody wanted the window seats. There were like maybe six tables at the windows, what everybody wanted, and People used to get crazy if they couldn't get their table, and they always said, "This is my table," and this and that. So, and how did you keep on top with who was who and who should sit? Yeah, with who? it was very <laughs> difficult. It was very difficult to do that, you know. And sometimes people got upset, and then they got over it. And I told him, "It's just a table. You get the same food. You sit next to it. What's the big deal?" And you had like an area called Siberia, which well, was the chili patio, right? Well, uh, the, the back of the restaurant. <laughs> At that time, we didn't even have a patio. It was still in the kitchen. It was on the back, in the back of the restaurant. And I still remember Tony Richardson came with Jack Nicholson, and they sat in the back because he didn't want to be in the middle. And so I had to tell everybody, well, Jack Nicholson likes the back better. And then some people said, ah, I like the front. And some people said, okay, then I want to sit there too. And you were even giving people pizza on the stairs when they were waiting, Yeah, right? yeah. I remember one, like, we took reservation, which didn't mean anything. You know, I remember one time Lionel Richie came with Jimmy Connors, and uh, 
we didn't have a table and they were waiting and waiting. And then finally I said, why don't you sit on the stairs going upstairs? And I fed them, I made a pizza for them, gave them some cocktails and they were hanging out and looking out on the dining room. Great. So what about the smoked salmon pizza? I mean, were it not for Joan Collins, would that have ever been invented? Who knows how things happen? You know, sometimes things happen by accident. Sometimes things happen when you do things. It still could have happened, you know, maybe not that day, maybe another day. But we were making our own smoked salmon. It was very successful and served it traditionally with, uh, you know, creme fraiche and dill Mm -hmm. and onions and lemon and so forth. So... And Joan used to like it because it was like they do it in England. You know, they cut it really thin and everything. So one night she came late and uh, with a group of people and she ordered the smoked salmon. Uh, and then we ran out of bread and brioche and we had nothing left. So I said, oh, my God, we cannot go to a store now. It's 11 o'clock at night. So I cooked some pizza dough, mm-hmm. and which was like bread. It's like a simple bread dough. And then cut it into wedges and send it out with it. And while I was doing it, I said, okay, now I'm going to make one with one, uh, uh, cook one uh, uh, pizza roll with the onions, the olive oil, and then so it gets nice and crispy on the bottom. And then uh, I, got, I put uh, the dill cream on it and then smoked salmon, some chives and some caviar. I cut it. Uh, I told the waiter, bring me a glass of champagne. So I had a glass of champagne and my first uh, smoked salmon pizza. And I said, wow, fabulous, this right? is a perfect uh, marriage. Yeah. So after catering to all these stars, you made a decision that surprised people at the time to democratize access to your food. What was that first product that you started with? You know, it was funny because at the beginning, Johnny Carson used to come to the restaurant all the time. And then one day, he always, on Friday, he used to come and take like eight or ten pizzas home. And one day I asked him, Johnny, what are you doing (laughs) with all these pizzas? And he says, I put them in the freezer, and when I play cards with my friend late at night, I have my houseman put in the pizza in the oven, and uh, we all love it. So I said, what? You're freezing my pizza. I'm not going to give you my pizza anymore. So he said, no, it's good. And uh, so then I tried it out myself, and then uh, I cooked it so that way when you finished baking it, I cooked it half, so when you finished baking it, it was good, and then with a doctor friend, uh, at that time at least, uh, we were supposed to start a, a food company, frozen food for heart healthy, for, because he was a cardiologist. Mm-hmm. So he said, if we can make food with no salt, just spices and things like that. And then I said, no, why do that? If people like our pizza, why we don't make frozen pizza? Mm-hmm. So Absolutely. we started to serve uh, or sell frozen pizzas to uh, some stores like some Vicente Food and uh, uh, Gelson's and so forth. And also we made some frozen desserts. Uh, so. And now your products are, are airports, grocery stores, everywhere, right? Yeah, we do a little bit of everything. I get excited about everything. And so I think uh, I don't stop. We always do different things. So I think uh, to me continuing doing what you love to do and when you're passionate about it that's what life is all about absolutely and you love coffee and you created a coffee line and you have all these great names breakfast in bed jamaica me crazy even rodeo drive right absolutely and you made a commitment 
to sustainable practices with yeah. your coffee. Ta- we were always into that. Since years, since the beginning, I always supported the local farmers. And uh, like I used to drive all the way to Rancho Santa Fe to the Chino farm to pick up vegetables. Even this morning, I was at the farmer's Fabulous. market. I still love yeah. it. To me, if you ask me, Wolfgang, what do you prefer, going shopping at Nima Markets or to the farmer's, farmer's market? market? There's no doubt I will go to the farmer's market. So for me, our cooking is all about the ingredients. If we get the best ingredients and then don't mess them up, we're going to have good food. Going back to your childhood, I saw this amazing photograph of you with your mother with these armfuls of vegetables from the kitchen yeah. garden. So what were you cooking with in Austria? Because well, it was the same thing. You went from like the Austrian gardens to yeah, Provence to totally. California. You know, for me, it was totally normal to go in the garden. You know, not in the winter we had snow, but in the, during the spring and summer and fall, we whatever we had, if we wanted salad... I never saw my mother went to a store and bought salad. Yeah, amazing. You know, they grew them uh, if it was peas or if it was carrots or cauliflower or potatoes. So we had that in the garden. You know, mm. we had a lot of potatoes because during the winter time uh, we ate a lot of potatoes because there was no fresh yeah. green beans and so forth. In the summer, we went up in the forest because we were very close to the forest. A few hundred yards up the hill was the forest. And we went and picked uh, strawberries, uh, wild strawberries, and uh, raspberries, and blackberries, and blueberries, mushrooms, you name it. So that's what we were eating. And I never felt deprived. You know, we ate meat once a week, maybe on Sunday for lunch, but I never felt bad. My mother was a good cook, and, uh, you know, for us, she made for dinner like palachinkan, which are these thin crepes with marmalade in it, Mm. and rolled, and with a little powdered sugar. And a glass of milk, and I was happy, or Kaiserschmarrn, or things like that. Fabulous. So your success in Hollywood led to a unique catering role at the pinnacle of the entertainment industry. So I think it's 29 years now that you've been yeah. cooking for the, for the Oscars. governor's board. Yeah. Yes, tell yeah, us about we, that. Yeah, well, we used to do a big Oscar party at Spargo. Right. Irving Lazar, Swifty Lazar was a famous agent, and he threw this Oscar party where everybody went, every big star, but no other people. He it was, was like private party, sick, right? Totally private, yeah. yeah. And uh, so when he passed away, and the Academy hated him because all the stars went to him, they never went to their party, you know. So when he passed away, and uh, they asked me again, I said, Wolfgang, why you don't try to do our thing? And I said, wow, you know, this will be a challenge. I never cooked for 1,500 people. Mm. So, and I said, okay, as long as you let me do what I want. So I still remember one time we had the, the tasting, the first tasting we had. And I told our chef at the old Spago, I said, okay, this is what we're going to do tomorrow. And uh, he uh, prepared everything. And we had one of the uh, designers or whatever, Cheryl, she came and said, oh, Matt, that's all you're going to do. You're not going to give them a fish to taste. You're not going to give them a chicken to taste. That's how they do that. And he told her, I'm sorry, that's what Wolfgang told me to do. That's what we're going to do. So I went out and told him, you know, I will do your party uh, if I can do what I want to do. Because I know all these guys are our customers anyway, you know, all the movie people. And I said, you know, if I do what I want to do and you don't tell me what to do, I don't tell you how to make the movie, you don't tell me what to cook. And that was it. (laughs) 
<laughs> and they said, okay, and they were happy because they didn't have to choose. Before, they used to get into fights. One wanted chicken, one wanted fish, one wanted steak, and so forth. So many of your former Spargo clients and these stars, they set the menu. So Barbara Streisand voted for the chicken pot pie, right? Yeah. John Travolta for the macaroni and cheese, yeah. the truffles. Who else influenced the dishes? It's so and interesting. They didn't influence them. It was I influenced them. When I served <laughs> it to them, they said, oh, my God, this is so delicious. And I remember Barbara telling me, you know, I'm coming to the Oscars. I hope you're going to make the chicken pot pie with truffles. And uh, we still make it every year after 20 years or so. And the chocolate Oscars, obviously, And the chocolate infamous. Oscars, yeah, became uh, like part of the whole deal. You know, it's so interesting that... I said, we have to make a dessert, but it looks like an Oscar. So we made this chocolate cake and put the Oscar on top. And then we found out everybody took it and then put it in their pocket. <laughs> and so then we said, okay, let's just give it to them and wrapped up and they can take it home. So everybody gets an Oscar. quite a career since 1984 in TV and the movie world with appearances in Frasier, The Simpsons, Keeping Up with the Kardashians, you were a judge on Hell's Kitchen and MasterChef, and you have your own documentary film. What was the most memorable role? You know, I remember one time I did a show, um, one of the first ones was with Tony Dancer, who was a good customer, and I think it was called Who's the Boss or something like that. And I remember I was so nervous and I didn't know there was an audience and everything. And uh, it was like for me, like I forgot the lines and everything. And uh, I remember another time uh, I did a movie with Albert Brooks. I was in, I played myself called The Muse. Right. So Sharon Stone was next to me and uh, another lady next to me. And I forgot my lines. I was so nervous being next to Sharon Stone that I spoke in German. So that way Albert Brooks said, Wolfgang, we are doing the movie in English. We don't going to have German with English subtitles. That's I remember. So I just was uh, totally, totally, I was totally lost. Funny. And then you received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame for your work in t How does that feel? Well, I don't know if it's for a little TV I did. I had my own TV show on the Food Network, and I actually won the first Emmy for the Food Network. But it's not my passion, really, the, you know, doing television right. or movies, because you have to wait around and wait and wait. A lot wait. of waiting. Yeah, I remember, like, uh, I did this thing with uh, Jimmy Khan. Uh, he had this show about Las Vegas. And uh, they called me uh, to the lot at 9 o'clock. So I sat there, read the paper, have a coffee and everything. And finally, by 12.30... We were still doing nothing. nothing. So I said, you know, I'm going to Spago for lunch. If you need me, call me. So I, we finished lunch, then I went back. By the time they put me on for a little bit, it was uh, uh, 6 o'clock at night. Yeah. So I said, this is terrible for me, a terrible waste of time sitting for six hours yeah. in my trailer. That was not fun. So I said, you know, I do what I love to do. I love the restaurant business. I like cooking. I love the ingredients. I love the whole thing. And I love customers. I love yeah. people. So... To me, that's really what I love to do, and at my age, I do what I want to do. Exactly. Unless my wife tells me anything else. So we're at Cut in Beverly Hills, and obviously it's not Spargo. So what spurred you to move from a you know, California cuisine to a steakhouse? Well, 
I think when uh, they offered me this space here at the Beverly Wilshire, which is one of the most famous hotels in the world, yeah. you know, the movie they made here and everything. And uh, uh, so I thought, you know, it's so close to Spargo. I said, what am I going to do? It has to be different. I said, if I open a restaurant less expensive, like so many chefs do, they have one upscale restaurant, then the next one is less expensive, and I'm going to say, all our customers are going to come here. Right. So then I thought, you know, the steak restaurants, they're all so boring. They all have the same thing. So I said, maybe we make a restaurant with interesting meats and great wine list, but also wonderful appetizers and desserts and side dishes. And then a good friend of mine uh, built uh, the Getty Museum. Richard Meyer. Richard Meyer, yeah. So one day we are playing tennis at his house. He lived uh, very close there in Brentwood. And I said, Richard, would you like to design a restaurant? And he's not done many restaurants. No, he like did. Maybe two, right, in his career. Yeah, maybe. He did one for Jean George in New York right. once after us, you know, but we, ours was really the first one, I think so. And uh, he said, yeah, why not? <laughs> so he made, because I wanted the restaurant to be different than the hotel. I didn't want it to become like a hotel restaurant where the lobby and the restaurant and everything looks right. the same. You know, that's what they do. They have one designer do the whole yeah. thing. And I didn't like it. I said, we have to have our own style, our own personality. And so he did the restaurant. It came out beautiful. Beautiful. You know, so, and, uh, you know, it's timeless. And uh, we have great art always. You know, my wife, Galila, is in charge of all the artwork and all that thing. So she had Chambalisari do all the paintings. And Amazing. So, it's beautiful space. Yeah. So whilst I'm at Cut, I have a dilemma, an L.A. dilemma. I'm a vegetarian. It's okay. We have a lot of vegetable dishes too. So, so how mind. do I navigate your mem- menu with my meat-eating friends? Well, you just tell us uh, if you're a vegetarian, we're always ready for you. I actually designed a plate for the vegetarians. Richard Meyer designed it. Oh, I asked did? him, I want a plate. So I said, okay, maybe in one spe- a, a f- thing for four. So I could put four dishes because I want them to feel really good. So maybe in one we put a little risotto with mushrooms. In the other one we had a, a little uh, pasta or something. In the other one we had an interesting vegetable dish. Maybe in the other one some asparagus, you know. So we made it really appetizing for the people and interesting for the people who are not meat eaters because I don't want anybody to be left out. And I like a lot of vegetables, too, and we get the best one, like from the Chino Ranch or these days from the farmer's market. Yeah, and I saw you have that delicious cream spinach with yeah. the egg, right? Yeah, that's... Delicious. A, that's from my childhood. You know, we didn't have... We had chickens at home, and we had spinach, but we had the wild spinach, the nettles, you mm, know? Amazing. So we had to go rip the nettles and take off the leaves, and they were stinging at that time. It was so tough. And then my mother made a puree just like with regular spinach and the sauce and the bechamel and everything. And then, because we had a lot of chicken, we had the creamed spinach with two eggs on mm. top, and that was it. Fabulous. That was our lunch. Or <coughs> we went in the morning in the forest, picked chanterelles, you know, the yellow yes, mushrooms. I love them. My mother chopped them up with some onions, some parsley, and then sautéed them, and then added, cracked a few eggs in there and continued cooking it. That was our lunch, maybe with a little salad out of the garden, and we were perfectly happy. Delicious. So we don't have to have meat only to be happy. 
You know, it's funny, just as an aside, I once ate with Marco Pierre White uh-huh. early on in England. He, at, at, I think it was at Harvey's. And he was horrified that I was vegetarian, and he kind of threw this plate on the table saying, here's your porridge. And it was actually a risotto, very good. Yeah. But he wasn't happy. He wasn't happy. Yeah, <laughs> no, I was like that too. I remember when I was at Mamezon, it had to be my way or the highway. I remember one time... Uh, Warren Cowan came with Paul Newman, and I loved Paul Newman because he was a big race car mm. guy, too. Yeah, it's true. And uh, they came, and I don't know who wanted the baked potato. And I said, I'm not making baked potato. Uh, I told the waiter, tell them to go to Loris. <laughs> so they sent their driver to go to Loris to pick up some baked potato, and I cooked whatever I cooked. But uh, I said, you know, it's my way or the highway. And yeah. people wanted sauce on the side. I said, you don't going to ask a painter to not paint it red. They do what they want, and you buy the painting. The same thing, you buy the dish. And, you know, it was difficult, and I was difficult. I remember we had Cat Stevens used to come to the restaurant, wanted to eat eggs for dinner. And uh, I said, no, screw him. I'm not cooking eggs for dinner, you know. And so Patrick came in. Oh, Cat Stevens is so upset that he doesn't get his eggs where it is. And I had them somewhere uh, cooking, and I took a little, took them out, grabbed the eggs, and <laughs> threw them against the wall. <laughs> Patrick had the yellow on his face and the thing coming down. I said, here's your ex. Oh, my God. So funny. Yeah, no, I was very difficult because I learned from other chefs to be like that. You know, that was the norm. Yeah, when I was at Beaumontier, Tullier, like if you sent something to the sauce station from the roasting station uh, and it was not hot enough, he just took the silver casserole and slid it across. We had yeah. this central stove. And, you know, if you don't duck or go out of the way, you got hit. I think there's a lot of violence in the kitchens, right? It used to be terrible. It yeah. used to be terrible. With yeah. knives and everything. Yeah. I mean, the chef uh, uh, who fired me, the first chef used to slap everybody. You know, we were 14-year-old boys and girls in the kitchen, and half of them were girls, and he couldn't care less if it was a woman or a, a man. Yeah. He just slapped you. I remember one time... He slapped the girl, and the girl turned, and he hit her right on the nose. And, you know, obviously she was crying and blood coming down like crazy. And we had these older waitresses, like four or five of them. They came out and put him in a corner. I thought they were going to kill him. It was like I was so happy. I said, hopefully they they slap him too or do something to him. He was like in the corner, like freaking out, didn't know what to do. But then... They went to the owner of the hotel said, you know what, this cannot happen. We're going to go to the press. We're going to make it known that he is beating people. And then I think it was a little better maybe for a while. Crazy. Yeah, it used to be totally, totally crazy in the kitchens, you know. And for what? Why? I don't know. You know, I always tell people, you know, if somebody screws up, for sure I get upset if it's the third time I tell them and they still don't do it right. But... Normally, if they mess up something, I just show them how to do it the right way. Right. It's easier than yelling at them. So Tokyo, you've mentioned, is one of your favorite places. And you've got several outlets in Japan. And Drew Rosenberg, the executive chef here at Cut, he has some experience in Japanese meat and fish, correct? So how does that sort of sensibility and knowledge play into the menu at Cut? I'm going to Japan since 1983. We opened Spago there in Roppongi. 
And I was always fascinated by the simplicity of Japanese food. You know, I said, shit, they serve raw fish with a little soy sauce, maybe a little cucumber flour next to it or whatever, but very simple. But it's delicious. You can eat it again the next day. So I was very, always very impressed. So when the Japanese called to open a Spago in Tokyo, I said, I was all excited. I said, okay. And then uh, I went to Japan often, like four or five times a year, and it was really always a great experience. Mm. And then later on, we opened some cafes and so forth in Japan. But to me, I still tell today my chefs, when they try to make food too complicated, I said, go to the best Japanese restaurant and see how simple it is. Yes, they have beautiful plates, but the rest is pretty simple. It's not complicated. Yeah, the minimalism is beautiful. And uh, I like it that way. So the restaurant industry in Los Angeles and around the world faced a huge challenge recently, the COVID pandemic. How did it affect you and your businesses? Well, it affected, uh, the, the COVID affected all of us really a lot because we had to close down the restaurant. You know, here we were closed for two years. And then uh, uh, Spago, we were closed for one year. And we did takeout and everything too. And you built and, something outside? Yeah, and then... Uh, uh, we built a huge tent. You know, I remember uh, when I talked to Lily Bossy, who is our mayor here in Beverly Hills, and she asked me how much space we want for the tent and uh, for the to build a tent. And everybody had like the sidewalk covered and everything. I said, "Oh, the whole street." And that uh, at that time was great because the thing was closed. The street was closed anyway. So she said, "Okay, just build it." So. I think it costed me like $500,000 to build the tent, but it helped us a lot to stay open, to keep the staff and everything else. Here we had to be closed because we didn't have a tent. We, and the outside was not very attractive. And in between the two buildings, it's too windy. There's too much of a current, air current. So I think uh, at Spago, it, it actually was bigger than before with the tent outside. Right. So back to food and then family. So your stepfather was clearly a force in your life, negative and also perhaps in hindsight positive, but you also had a group of amazing women around you. Can you talk a little bit about them? Well, I think uh, I'm lucky that, uh, you know, my mother was an angel. You know, I don't know why she married my stepfather. I don't know what he did, if he was that good in bed or whatever, you know, I don't know. I never asked her. So. Uh, but I told her many times, you should divorce him and come here to America. But she never did. So I felt bad for her because he was crazy. So uh, that, that was like the yin and the yang. My mother was an angel and my stepfather. Did, he, did, he, did she protect you from him? You know, she was gone six months out of the year cooking. I see. So I was at home with my with, grandmother. Oh, I see. Yeah, okay. The only one who stood up to him was my grandmother. You know, she took a kitchen towel and hit him with the kitchen towel and said, get out of the kitchen and everything. And he didn't know what to do. But with us, with the kids, he took his belt off, he took the garden hose and hit us with anything. Oh, my God. So I think he was, uh, he was uh, yeah, really a terrible. And then... You know, the first woman who was a chef, and then it went okay. And then later on, I think, uh, you know, I married Barbara uh, in um, 1984. 
And she was a real force in creating yeah, that yeah, design. Yeah, she created for, Spago. Yeah. She, she uh, built Spago. She built uh, Chinua and she built uh, uh, Eureka and some of the cafes yeah. we had and everything. She definitely had her own style, and I couldn't tell her what to do, which was very difficult. And it created a big <laughs> friction. Part of it, it was because... Well, two great creatives, right? Yeah, and, but we, you have to work to a common thing, and we could not agree on a common thing. So then we got divorced. In 2000. And then in 2007, I married Galila, who is also very opinionated and um, in fashion. And she runs our marketing and she runs our branding. So, and also overseas, like if we do a new design or things like that for restaurants, like we are remodeling Spago now a little bit. Uh, it's coming up right. in the summer. And so she's overseeing it. So, because I said, I have good taste in women, but not in design. <laughs> So it's interesting that at the peak of your success, you were estranged from your family, and at times they didn't know where you were, and you were cooking for your Hollywood family. But now your family has taken center stage again. You have your son, Byron. He's in the business, and he's set to take over. How is that, working together with him? You know, it was very exciting. So I have four sons. Right. The oldest one is a professor. He's the first one who got a PhD. He lives in Boston. And I just became a grandfather a few months Congratulations. ago. Congratulations. Thank you. So, and then my second son, Byron, went here to Harvard Westlake, just like uh, uh, Cameron. And he only wanted to go to one school, was Cornell. They have a famous hospitality management school there. Right. But already before that, he loved to be in the kitchen. So I remember when he was 16, we just talked about it. I said, Byron, how old were you when I sent you to London to work at Nobu in London and uh, some other place? And, uh, and he said, 16, I was in high school. I said, wow, I forgot that. I thought you were 18 at least. So I sent him to London. I remember he got mugged and called me up. I said, Papa, oh I got mugged in the street. I said, well... Be careful where you walk, you know. Don't walk around like a loose guy. And uh, so then after Cornell, during the time he was at Cornell, I sent him to Spain and to Paris, and he worked in different restaurants. And uh, then he worked at Spago in the dining room for a year. And then he opened up uh, Miroir at the Pendry. Right. Which became a super successful restaurant. It was his first job as manager. And I remember he used to call me, Papa, what should I do? I said, you figure it out, you know, and I hung up. So he, he said he couldn't sleep all night. He said, I, I don't want to disappoint me or disappoint right. the people there. So it was very difficult for him, but he learned a lot. So, and it gave him great confidence. But last year, after one and a half years doing Meroir, uh, I sent him back to Europe to cook. So he went to Bomania for oh, four did. months. And he went also cooking in Vienna at Steirajek, which is the best restaurant in Vienna. And cooked there for three months. So I told him he has to learn a little bit the roots. Fantastic. And but, what about the other three sons? Are they interested so then in the, cooking? The, the first one is a professor. Right. Yeah, he's married. And it's actually his wife makes the money because she went to Harvard Business School and works for McKinsey. Uh, so she has a great job there. And then uh, Byron is working with me, hopefully taking over one day. And then I have uh, Oliver and Alexander. Oliver is in 11th grade. Alexander is in 10th grade. Right. So Oliver wants to be in the music business. And uh, Alexander said, well, maybe I study marketing and uh, maybe uh, business. We'll see. 
Mm, so maybe they'll all end up in the business. Uh, they're running the whole business, exactly. yeah. Exactly. And so when you're a family together at home, what's your favorite thing to cook and eat together? You know, I really like to cook with the kids, which doesn't happen often enough, but I think it's really nice when everybody does the thing, like we make a risotto, one is chopping their onions, one is doing this, right. and I supervise and tell them, okay, cook a little more, a little longer, a little less, or whatever. So I think that's really fun because I really want the children to enjoy the process of cooking, that it shouldn't be a chore, it should be a, a fun. And as long as we have somebody to clean up, then it's okay. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, your accomplishments are extensive and seemingly boundless. Do you ever want to stop and just enjoy what you've done? I think I enjoy life by doing things. So for me to sit back, and my wife often says, why we don't just sell everything and, uh, you know, take it easy? Yeah. I said, I will get bored and probably I will get sick and die if I wouldn't have yeah. a purpose. I think for me to having purpose in life, to doing new things is exciting. Like in two weeks, I'm going to uh, Riyadh in Saudi Arabia. Oh, we are. are opening over there. Fantastic. Right now we are building, I think uh, my wife is working with Fangiri to build a, a restaurant on the beach, which is Gladstone now. So we're going to tear it down and build a new building. It's always interesting to do new things in different places and learn new things. And for me, it's about learning, keeping my interest up and uh, being involved. And uh, I think that's what I love. Like I remember like five years ago, six years, five years ago probably, the Wall Street Journal did an article on me and they talked about, you know, about the business and this and this. So Wolfgang, what are you still dreaming about? Or what are you seeing in your dreams? And I said, my dream is really to go to Harvard. And uh, I said it as a joke, you know, I never went to high school or whatever. And then a few days later, when the article came out, the dean of Harvard Business School calls they me called and, said, you? and said, Wolfgang, when do you want to come? And I started the way and I said, well, you know, so I never went to uh, college, you know. And he said, that's okay. And then I uh, said, but you have a business. And I said, but I never went to high school either. And he said, well, but you run a pretty big business. I read about you, you know. So then he said, he has the perfect thing for me, the perfect uh, uh, program. It's called OPM, Owner President's Management. And it's three times a month, over a two-year period. So you stay there in the school, stay in the dormitory and everything. So it was very interesting for me. And uh, my daughter-in-law went there for two years for graduate school. I only went for a little bit, but they do all these case studies. And they also did a case study on me. So it's very exciting. What's next in cooking for the next generation? Like, what do you think is the sort of future of the way we sort of eat and, I mean... Well, I I think it will continue this relationship between the producers of food and the people who do the cooking and giving it to the guests, that there's a really good relationship, because I think that's really the most important part, and... I know not everybody can afford to go to the farmer's market and right. buy a little thing of strawberries and spend $12, you know. And uh, But I think we have to support the small farms and we have to support the fishermen and we have to support people who are really good at what they do. And, you know, if it's a guy, a baker who makes great bread, you know, we buy the bread. I know it's more expensive than factory bread, mm. but I think it's also so much better. Absolutely. So I think I think cooking gonna go also a little bit more in the healthy way because I think more and more we know 
what is good for us and not so good for us. Like for me, for example, I love sweets more than anything. But when I eat too much sugar, it's not good. I get inflammation and I feel uh, lousy and everything. And uh, if I don't eat the sugar, I feel so much better. And, so, and you're, you've expanded into the healthcare space. You have some uh, arrangements with hospitals, right? The, the yeah, cancer we, we hospital do, in uh, Ohio in Cleveland, and, and, yeah. and Rochester. Uh-huh. I mean, very interesting. Arts obviously always been. Yeah, raised I, in think, these I think spaces. it's mainly for like our cafes at this. Uh, hospitals are really great for the people who come and visit the patients or if a patient you know has something uh, not so bad he can go and get a good salad and get a maybe a good pizza or whatever they like and get something more than hospital food because we know hospital food is very boring but also for the doctors the nurses and everybody you know for them to have a nice meal it's an important part well, Wolfgang, thank you so much. Such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thank Congratulations you. on an incredible success and bringing us all closer to the land through the extraordinary produce that we have on our doorsteps here. Thank you so much. Glad to see you here at Cut, and hopefully you come and eat our vegetables here. I would love to, actually. Thank you. Thank you. Wolfgang Park has earned three Michelin stars. He is a James Beard award-winning restaurateur, and in June 2022, he was recognized by the International Hospitality Institute as one of 100 most powerful people in global hospitality. Rodeo Drive, the podcast, is presented by the Rodeo Drive Committee with the support of the Heyman family, Beverly Wilshire, a Four Seasons Hotel, and the Beverly Hills Conference and Visitors Bureau. This episode was hosted by Lynn Winter. I'm Kathy Gohari with the Rodeo Drive Committee. Join us on Instagram at Rodeo Drive.